0: Вечера, you are listening Ukraine 242 we bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine thanks to all our listeners around the world here is our collaborator and your host and living
1: Welcome to Ukraine 242, featuring interviews with key people in Ukraine and important academic experts in Slavic studies. I am your host, Anne Levine, from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network. Our guest today is Sergei Plohi, widely considered to be the greatest living expert of Ukrainian history. He is legendary in Ukraine and in academic circles worldwide. He is the Mikhailo Khrushchevsky Professor of Ukrainian History at Harvard. Since 2013, he has served as the director of the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, where he leads a group of scholars working on MAPA, the digital atlas of Ukraine. Plokhi is extraordinarily prolific. He has published a book nearly every year for the past 20 years. His work, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, is widely considered to be the definitive history of Ukraine. Sergei Plochi, I thoroughly enjoyed the, the Gates of Europe, The History of Ukraine, and it taught me a lot.
0: Thank you for having me on your show. And I'm really very pleased that you not only read The Gates of Europe, but also enjoyed reading it.
1: Could you tell us how and when Ukraine got its name? The majority of the scholars
0: believe that the name reflects the position of Ukraine on the border between the settled areas and the steppes. So much of today's war is waged in those steppes north of the Crimea. Ukraine as a society, starting with the 16th and 17th centuries, started to move into the steppe areas, and that's where the name Ukraine started to be associated with the areas, but also with a particular polity created by the Cossacks in the mid-17th century, who rebelled against the Polish kings and established a polity of their own. So the word Ukraine was used to define not just the place, but also institutions, people who live there of the 17th century.
1: Prior to 1991 and the collapse of the Soviet Union, what were the most glorious periods in Ukrainian history? Probably the parts of Ukrainian
0: history that Ukrainians know most about and associate with. There are two moments of Ukrainian statehood. One coming from the 11th and 12th centuries, another from the 17th centuries, and they refer to the history of Ukraine during the Middle Ages, creation, a major state in Eastern Europe with the capital in Kiev, which historians call Kievan Rus'. It included territories from the Carpathians in the west, Volga, Basin in the east, and reaching all the way north to Novgorod in today's Russia. So Kievan Rus would be one part of history of which Ukrainians are very proud. If you go to Kiev today, you will find the, the references to those glorious moments in Ukrainian history right there downtown probably the most prominent landmark close to Khreshchatyk Kiev's main street, the uh, so-called Golden Gate. The cathedral is a Byzantine cathedral built around the same time. You can walk inside and you can also uh, look at the square near St. Sophia Cathedral and you will find at the middle of that square a monument to the founder of the Ukrainian Cossack state. In mid 17th century.
1: What if we move to the 18th century and Catherine the Great's expansion of Russia, including her term for Ukraine, New Russia, and how there's a direct through line to what is happening now?
0: Well, the Russian Empress referred to as Catherine the Great in the West and in Russia is referred to as Catherine the Second in Ukraine. So a different perspective on Catherine, on her rule and what that really meant. The abolition of the Ukrainian statehood came under Catherine the Second. She abolished the office of the Cossack leader of the Hetman and she liquidates the Ukrainian Cossack army and Ukrainian autonomy. So these are all factors that make Ukrainians look at Catherine and her rule, at least with suspicion, if not with complete rejection. When Catherine is closely associated on many levels with Russian imperialism, during Catherine II rule, major cities started to be created, and so on and so forth. Um, there is a monument to Catherine II in the city of Odessa that has made headlines more than once in the last few months And uh, uh, I have to check whether the monument is still there in Odessa. I have very little doubt that it will be probably removed from the place in downtown Odessa and maybe placed in some more appropriate location where it would rather refer more to the memory of those times and periods rather than the celebration of the Russian conquest of southern Ukraine and Black Sea shores. What you see now in the context of the current war First of all, that so-called New Russia, the name that was given to the province conquered by the Russian troops in southern Ukraine, was used by Russia to claim this territory for current Russian Federation. And uh, the question is whether Catherine is celebrated there as being an empress, opened the southern part of Ukraine, the, the Black Seashore, for the state colonization.
1: Could you explain, why have Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, to name a few, been able to maintain such strong national identities while Ukraine has not?
0: Um, Ukraine experienced relatively long periods of the state existence that I talked about. The Kievan Rus' and then the Cossack state that was independent for a while, but then that independence and autonomy were abolished. But the majority of the Ukrainian history up until 1991 is the existence of a country of people being divided by international borders. That historical trajectory of how Ukraine came into existence as an independent state is a major contributing factor to continuing existence of Ukrainian democracy and diverse cultural religious pluralism that continues today in Ukraine. Now, that also posed a major challenge about the unity of the country, whether the country is too diverse to be able to hold together, especially in the face of Russian aggression. And that was the Ukrainian question back in 2014. The current war started with the Russian annexation of the Crimea, and uh, Ukraine turned out to be really ill-prepared for that sort of attack and couldn't mobilize itself The Crimea was taken over by Russia, and Russia managed to initiate and support so-called hybrid warfare by Russia in in eastern parts of Ukraine to mobilize resentment and opposition toward Kiev in the Ukrainian Donbass region. Because Russia came this day, if you are speaking Russian, which was the case in the Crimea, which was the case more than often in Donbass, then you are Russian and your loyalty is to Russia so russian aggression in a way really supported and maintained ukrainian diverse cultural pluralism so today ukraine mobilized across the religious ethnic and linguistic divides the war in ukraine today is actually a bilingual war on the ukrainian side russian is used probably as often as
1: is ukrainian on on the front lines speaking about language Can you give us a little bit of history about the source of Russian and the source of Ukrainian, how these languages came into being and became two separate languages?
0: Most Scholars believe that at some point there was a common homeland of Slavic peoples and all Slavic languages, considered to be the forests and marshes located in today's northwestern Ukraine and southwest Belarus and eastern Poland. And then their languages evolved out of the movement from different Slavic groups into different areas and how far they were getting away from their traditional homelands and what other ethnic and linguistic and cultural influences they encountered. And again, Ukrainian and and Russian story is that sort of a story. If you look at the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian movement is into the steppe areas controlled by the Turkic population and and, and Turkic tribes. So the, the term Cossack, for example, is of Turkic origins. But probably more important than the presence of Russian in Ukraine is not the origins of the languages, but the politics of the languages, especially in the 19th century, with the start of the formation of modern nations because Russian authorities controlled uh, the majority of Ukraine by that time. And they were trying to build something that historians call a big Russian nation, and something that Vladimir Putin keeps repeating today, Ukrainians don't exist as a separate nation, that Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians were one and the same people. The reality on the ground was that Ukrainians were speaking different languages. But in the mid-19th century, The imperial authorities decide to arrest the development of the Ukrainian language as a literary language, outside of the school system, outside of high culture. And uh, the prohibitions were introduced on the publications in the Ukrainian language that lasted for more than 40 years, up until the Russian Revolution of 1905. Uh, Not completely killing the Ukrainian national project and, and language per se, but certainly slowing it down. And then the Soviet Union made major concessions in cultural terms, including language in the 1920s, to keep Ukraine within the Soviet Union. So that policy was left behind by 1930s, and by 1950s and 60s and 70s, we see the policy of Russification and the absolute majority of the colleges and universities that existed taught in Russian. So if you want your child to have any future, any profession to make it in life, you have to send the child to the Russian language school. And that's the policy. What the oppression of the Ukrainian language meant was turning the Ukrainian language and culture, turning ukrainian speaking Ukrainians into a second grade citizen. Those policies of Russification formed a very interesting phenomenon that came to the fore today in the person of the president of Ukraine. Zelensky, it created the situation in which a good part of Ukrainians were Russian-speaking, but they have patriotism with Ukraine as a political institution after 1991 allowed them really to form a Ukrainian identity that was not exclusively the loyalty to the language. So you see a mobilization around cultural plurality coming from Russian speakers, including the previous president Poroshenko and the current president Zelensky, um, the most prominent woman in Ukrainian politics, Yulia Tymoshenko. All
1: of them come from Russian language. Could we hear from you about the article Putin wrote and published last year? Um, From what I hear, this was really very much written by
0: Putin. It really is a manifestation of his belief. It's also an attempt to develop the thesis that Russians and Ukrainians are one and the same people. He writes about that in the first opening paragraphs where he's talking about contemporary Ukraine and how upset he was with this political system which is democracy that was brought by West to Ukraine allegedly and that was Ukraine government to maintain its independence and its sovereignty. And it really brings to the fore the recycling of the ideas coming from imperial narrative of pre nineteen seventeen Russia.
1: Well, many people call the current aggression Putin's war. Is that an accurate description, or is this Russia's war, which goes back centuries and centuries?
0: Um, There is no question of Putin's own obsession with imperial history and attempt to go down in history as the restorer and builder of the greater Russia. But his actions represent a much broader phenomenon, and it is really very important not to overlook that. It is a sentiment in the broader Russian society associated with the quote-unquote loss of the Soviet Union in the Cold War. So this idea is about restoring in one form or another Russian control over the post-Soviet space. Russian greatness as a, as a superpower in, on the international arena. This is a widespread sentiment within Russia and within Russian society. The majority of Russians support Putin and support Putin's actions in Ukraine. So it is Putin's war, but it is Russia's war. And one thing should be absolutely clear: we will be dealing in the future with Russia that very much internalized Putin's ideas, whether Putin is around or not.
1: What do you think a post-Putin Russia looks like as far as Ukraine is concerned?
0: Um, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that this war is a turning point in the history of Russian-Ukrainian relations. Ukraine proved its right and ability to stay independent, to continue. So this is not a question anymore. There can be certainly a change of the borders. Chechnya, for example, is de facto already a semi-independent state, so I I wouldn't be surprised if there would be Russian territorial law in the Caucasus. Uh, For me, what is at stake in this war is also the demand to the ideas about Russians and Ukrainians being one and the same people. No one in Ukraine believed in that before the war. No one believes, especially today. After predominantly Russian-speaking cities of the east, like Mariupol or Kharkiv, were attacked and almost wiped out. But I also expect that in Russia, there will be a growing understanding and realization that there is no future. So Russian subjugation of Ukraine. So I think despite all this horror, what is happening, or maybe because of the horror, what is happening, it's a major turning point in many ways in terms of formation of very separate, very different Russian and Ukrainian identities.
1: We, for the most part, think of this current aggression as a singular thing. But actually, as you say, the current aggression started in 2014 and is backed up by centuries of other aggressions.
0: Um, Yes, you're absolutely right that this war started eight years back. And uh, I put it into the context of the disintegration of empire, in this particular case, Russian empire. Ukraine played extremely important role in dissolving the, the Soviet Union one week after the Ukrainian referendum for independence. So from the Ukrainian side, it is a war of liberation. But again, it's a, it's a process more than just going back to 1991 and the fall of the Soviet Union. It's, it's the process that really started in World War One, the start of the disintegration of other empires from the Ottoman to Austria-Hungarian, and then was followed by French, British, Portuguese, and so on and so forth. So there is the broader historical context. It is a war of liberation on the part of Ukraine and imperial war of trying to restore its control over the territory in one way or another by traditional imperial power.
1: What did and didn't Ukraine learn about their situation? And why did the attack in February cause such a response? I think that the realization
0: that um, Russian threats will not disappear overnight, that Russia would not be satisfied with Crimea alone, was one of the lessons of the first stage of the war in 2014 and 2015. The war served as mobilization of Ukrainian resources and transformation of the society in the way that the Ukrainians, who rarely lived in the states of their own, as I explained earlier... After 2014-2015, Ukrainians started to look at the state as their state, as the, the institution that was supposed to help them and that represented them and protected them. And the same was true for the armed forces. And that was a dramatic change in attitude toward the state, toward the country, preparedness to risk your life and to die for it something that wasn't really there at the time when Russia came and started to cut off pieces of Ukraine with the annexation of the Crimea and the war in Donbass. And part of Putin's miscalculation in February 2022 is that he believed that he was invading the Ukraine of 2014, and he invaded a very, very different country. If in 2014 he was able to Start the hybrid warfare to destabilize Ukraine by igniting all sorts of differences between Russian and Ukrainian language, igniting the differences between the regions. Nothing of that kind happened in 2022. Images of the citizens that we saw that had no arms and marched with Ukrainian banners and the Ukrainian tents in February and March of this year mostly came from eastern and southern ukraine from the russian speaking areas of ukraine where the percentage of the ethnic russians was the highest and that came as a surprise to the aggressors that was day and night situation compared to 2014 so i would say the the ukrainians realized after 2014 that that conflict was not going to go away and to disappear that they have to mobilize that they took another look at their state at the history, at the relation to both. And when the war came, it was a very different Ukraine that certainly Moscow didn't expect to see.
1: Why did Zelensky believe that the Russians were not just saying they were about to invade, that he believed that they were? He spoke out in a speech to the Russian nation You know, please don't come and kill us. We're your brothers and sisters. In my opinion, he was saying that because he, if not,
0: believed that the war would not happen. Uh, He was preparing for the war, and military in particular. If they were not preparing, they wouldn't be able to withstand the, the, the first assault. But he was there basically articulating people's hopes that the war would not come or that it was impossible. And that was his public position. And uh, that was, at the same time, his weakness and his strength. The strength came with the fall of the first missiles on Kiev on the morning of February 24, 2022, where Zelensky actually said that he and the country were fighting, that he was not leaving Kiev, and it became a major, major force on mobilization of resistance to the Russian aggression and at enormous, it's enormous risk personally, to reject this invitation from the West that he should go to one of the European countries, create government in exile, and so on and so forth. And I think that that public articulation of this belief and and rejection of the idea that there would be war before the war started, and then this courage with which he met the aggression, uh, come from the same source. Zelensky, as is well known, even before the aggression, is a band-up comic and entertainer and organizer of a very successful business around all of that. So he has the skill that only the best of the actors and the best of the politicians have. He can fill the audience, whether that audience in the hall where he was performing or this audience is his nation. And I'm thinking about him as an articulator and amplifier of the attitudes that are there in the society. And the attitudes before February 24 were that we don't want the war, we don't want to think that the war would happen, we hope that it will not happen. And once the war happens, Zelensky is an articulator and amplifier of determination not to back off to fight. The most difficult parts in this war in February and March of this year, no less than 75% of the Ukrainians believed in victory. At no point, Ukrainians doubted that they would win. And I would say that uh, maybe 15-20% of that belief came from Zelensky and how he behaved. But the rest, over 50% of that belief, was coming from the people. And Zelensky was there to articulate, to amplify, to reinforce what people felt.
1: We can look back at, say, a thousand years of Ukraine in czarist Russia, Soviet Russia, Putin's Russia. The final question I'd like to ask you is from all the history that you're so well-versed in, what do you see is in the cards for the next thousand years?
0: For me personally, the biggest um, outcome of this war was clear already after the first week of the start of the all-out aggression, that Ukraine survived and Ukraine will continue. So that question has been answered by the Ukrainian people, by the democratically elected officials like Zelensky and others. So this situation at the beginning of this year, in which anyone like Putin could think or imagine that he could actually cancel Ukraine and its, its history and existence of Ukrainian nation, that, that is in the past. So this is the biggest outcome of this war. So I'm very, very optimistic about Ukraine. I uh, think that Ukraine will emerge from the war not only stronger, but also would maintain democracy and and commitment to democracy. I I, uh, also think that Ukraine clearly demonstrates its commitment to the principles of democracy, not only within the context of one country, but globally. The European Union and the membership of some form of association Clearly, Ukraine is already a major partner of NATO. So I see Ukraine joining what is in Ukraine called Europe in in terms of rule of law, in terms of economy, in terms of the security systems and so on and so forth. It will not be uh, probably overnight, but I um, would be very, very surprised if that is not happening. So continuing existence of Ukrainian democracy, and integrating into the broader European structures. That was on Ukraine's agenda during the uh, Revolution of Dignity in 2014 that uh, triggered the, the Russian aggression against Ukraine, and the outcome of that war will make these goals more attainable. So optimistic in long term, very concerned about immediate future of the country, of the people.
1: Well, this is a great place to stop on a note of optimism and i want to thank you so much for giving me so much time you're most welcome it was a pleasure thank you and i look forward to your next book which is probably coming out in 15 minutes (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> then, then i should run <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh and it was it was a pleasure and uh, have a good weekend thank uh, you
1: yeah thank okay. you you too bye-bye Thanks. thank you uh, thank you Our thanks to Sergei Plochi. He is the Mikhailo Khrushchevsky Professor of Ukrainian History at Harvard. His work, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, is widely considered to be the definitive history of Ukraine. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording by Michael Levine. The music is Anguas, or Anguish, by Mikhailo Lysenko. To see pictures of our guests and for more information, go to ukraine242.com. If you wish to send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, please call 510-883-3115 and record your message. It will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine on Kraina FM's 24-station radio network. That number is 510-883-3115. This is Anne Levine. Until next week on Ukraine 242.